Hello, friends of Scatcast. Welcome to Dipshit Files, episode 21, the second part of Ted Bundicles. Mm-hmm. Ted Bundy. And I'm Mr. Scriptkeeper. And I'm Mrs. Scriptkeeper. And we've already opened up this file, so why don't we just dig right back into it? Yep. This is the Dipshit Files, part two on Ted Bundy. <laughs> So this is the final part on Ted Bundy, we think, mm-hmm. and it is got a whole bunch of shit in it. Yeah. It's got some dark twists. and yeah. So we'll have the friendly friends show up again this week <laughs> to kind of lighten the mood if we can. Uh, but anyways, there's also a dipshit meter shakeup yeah, that this, occurs at the end of this episode. I, I thought that uh, Ted Bundy might give our... Give our list a run, yeah. a shake and it up he, a bit. He sure did. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll get to that at the end. Mm-hmm. But uh, let's get right into... Ted Bundy. The Dipshit Files presents part two of Ted Bundicles. So last week we covered Ted Bundy's early life, his uh, his early education, college education, and the beginning of his killing spree. Uh, we learned about his ridiculously failed attempts at romance and Whoopsies, and yeah. the depravity that began to emerge during that period of time. He's one of the sickest folks. So we left off in September of 1974 with his first series of murders and nine victims in Washington from January to July. And today we're going to move on to a second series of murders and we find ourselves in Utah. Utah. But before we do, just a reminder that the Friendly Friends are there just in case Ted Bundicles gets a little too... Friendly Friends are friendly as fuck. Hey, what you got there, smiley the unicorn? Oh, I've got this baseball bat. Hey, you better not swing that around. Oh, don't worry about it, Hugsy Bear. <coughs> oh no, you bashed Hugsy the Bear's brains out. Wow, that's a lot of blood. Oh. Let's roll in it. Right, right. Yeah, so wholesome shit like that. Friendly Friends have got your back. Please continue, Mrs. Scriptkeeper. In August 1974, Bundy was accepted into the University of Utah Law School, and he moved to Salt Lake City, leaving his long-term girlfriend, Elizabeth Klopfer, in Seattle. In September 1974, Ted Bundy moved into room number two at 565 First Avenue North in Salt Lake City. He had previously abducted and murdered at least eight women in Washington and Oregon, though investigators think there were many more victims. While he called Clover often, he dated at least a dozen other women during this time. As he studied the first-year law curriculum, he was devastated to find out that the other students had something, some intellectual capacity that he did not. He found the classes completely incomprehensible, and he stated it was a great disappointment to him. A new string of homicides began the following month, so dude dude, dude took a month off. (laughs) He's like, well, I'm not going to be able to do this, so fuck the world. Yeah, yeah, so uh, the following month, a new string of homicides began, including two that would remain unbelievable discovered until Bundy confessed to them shortly before his execution. On September 2nd, he raped and strangled a still unidentified hitchhiker in Idaho, then either disposed of the remains immediately in a nearby river or returned the next day to photograph and dismember the corpse. 
There is a bit of confusion on the details in this case because, well, as we discussed in part one of this series, Bundacles is a liar. <laughs> Bundacles. Bundacles, yes. <laughs> Almost immediately after moving into the boarding house, he began murdering women and teenage girls in the Salt Lake City area. Yes. The confirmed victims of Bundy up to this point had been college-aged women, but while living here, he shifted his focus to include high school and middle school-aged girls. Yikes. In total, during his stay at this house, he murdered at least 10 girls and women ranging in age from 12 to 26. Wow. He later admitted to bathing the bodies of some of his victims and applying makeup to them post-mortem. Fuck you, Bundacles. Bundy would also photograph the bodies of his victims. Of course he would. And he hid these photographs in the utility room of this boarding house. Nancy Wilcox was Bundy's first known victim in Utah. On October 2nd, 1974, the 16-year-old vanished after leaving her home on Arnett Drive. When Nancy went missing, both her parents and the police initially presumed that she had run away. Right. At the time, nobody in Utah imagined that the man who'd been terrorizing Seattle was now living amongst them. Because of this, the Sheriff's Juvenile Division did not release a public appeal for information until December of 1974, which was three months after she disappeared. Yikes. And even then, they were keen to stress that Nancy still might be a runaway. In the aftermath of Nancy's disappearance, the police were unable to find any clues that might suggest her whereabouts. During the course of the investigation, they contacted at least 45 friends and acquaintances. However, none of them knew where she was. Furthermore, several of her friends also passed lie detector tests. Of course. All in all, Seems as though the police had very little to go on. On November 30th, 1974, the authorities began a two-day search of the canyons around Salt Lake City. Unfortunately, they were unable to find any trace of Nancy Wilcox. Bundy lived roughly eight miles away from the Wilcox residence. After her case was first publicized, a waitress from Lake Point called the sheriff's office and reported that she had seen a girl matching Nancy's description at her restaurant. Mm -hmm. According to this waitress, the young girl was accompanied by a tall young man who had a mustache. Afterwards, they left and drove away in a light-colored Volkswagen. According to her family members, Nancy mentioned an older guy who would come into her workplace and flirt with her. At the time, the 16-year-old was working at an Arctic Circle drive-in restaurant located only a mile and a half away from where Nancy lived. Before Nancy went missing, she told her cousin Jamie Hayden that she had met an older guy who was attending law school. However, she did not say anything else about this man. During an interview with Nancy's sister, Susie Nelson, she recalled a similar conversation. According to Susie, her sister became noticeably excited when she spotted this older guy driving past their house. Mm. She said something along the lines of, oh my gosh, that's the guy who's been coming into my work. Susie also recalls that on the day she went missing, Nancy left the house after having an argument with her father. If this was the case, then that might explain why the police were so reluctant to dismiss the theory that she had run away. Shortly before his execution in 1989, Ted Bundy confessed to the murder of Nancy Wilcox. During his interview with Salt Lake Detective Dennis Couch, he stated that he was on a main roadway that was south of the University of Utah School of Law. According to Bundy, it was dark at the time and the lighting in the area was poor. When he spotted Nancy walking along the side of the road, he forcibly ushered, right. quote unquote, ushered her mm -hmm. into a nearby orchard. At that point, he restrained the 16-year-old, mm -hmm. put her in his car, and then drove back to his apartment. At the time, there was an orchard 500 feet south of Nancy's house. 
In Bundy's confession, he claimed that he kept the teenager in his apartment for one day before he finally murdered her. What a nightmare. He did not say anything about knowing her beforehand, nor did he go into detail about the murder. During the interview, Bundy pointed out that he remembered Wilcox's case because it took a relatively long time for her name to actually appear in the newspaper. And this showed that he was paying close attention to news coverage about his crimes. Mm -hmm. However, during one of Bundy's third-person pseudo-confessions with author Stephen Michaud, he would change his story and claimed that the killer parked his car further down the road. He then ran up behind Nancy Wilcox and forced her into the orchard. According to Bundy, the killer planned on raping the girl. He did not intend on murdering her. In the killer's mind, avoiding the act of murder might draw less attention to the crime. However, the plan did not work, as the victim started to struggle with him. At that stage, he began to worry that someone in one of the nearby houses might hear the struggle and investigate. So in a fit of panic, he strangled the girl until she passed out. Then, once the victim was unconscious, he removed her clothes and raped her. Friendly friends will give you a hug. On this episode of Friendly Friends, Smiley the Unicorn gives his pal Buddy the Beaver a hug. Man, I sure feel sad. What's your problem, Buddy the Beaver? I think I just need a hug. I'll give you a hug. Come here. You just impaled Buddy the Beaver with your unicorn horn. Yeah, I didn't really think that through. Nope. Let's bathe in the blood. Okay. In the aftermath of the crime, he started to realize that the girl had stopped moving. This panicked him so much that he dragged her body into a corner and then left. However, once the killer had returned to his apartment, he immediately began to worry that he had left physical evidence. As a result, he decided to travel back to the orchard to see if her body was still there. According to Bundy, the killer was so intoxicated during the crime that it took him a while to find the exact area again. Once he found the orchard, he saw that there was nobody around and that Nancy's body was still undisturbed. Subsequently, he loaded her body and clothes into his car and drove back to his apartment. The fuck? He then waited, quote, a day or two, end quote, before disposing of the, her remains. Although Ted Bundy claimed that he left Nancy's remains somewhere near Capitol Reef National Park, he was unable to pinpoint the exact location. If Bundy was telling the truth, then it means that he drove for roughly four hours in order to dispose of Nancy Wilcox's remains. Frustratingly, though, it seems as though the detectives who interviewed Bundy before his execution did not have any detailed maps. So sadly, both of Nancy Wilcox's parents passed away without ever finding out what happened to their daughter. If Bundy's confession was correct, then it means that Nancy's remains were still out there somewhere in the vast expanse of the Utah wilderness. Hmm. 16 days later, on October 18th, 17-year-old Melissa Ann Smith disappeared on her way home after visiting a friend nearby. Melissa was the daughter of Midvale's police chief, Lewis Smith. It was discovered later that Ted Bundy abducted the young girl shortly after she left a pizza parlor on West Center Street in Midvale at around 10 p.m., One unconfirmed report suggests that he may have been asking women in the area to assist him with a car issue. That night, Melissa was supposed to be staying over at a friend's house. However, those plans fell through after her friend failed to answer the phone. After realizing that she had been stood up, she decided to leave the parlor and walk back to her home on Fern Drive. Sadly, she never made it that far. At some point during her journey, it seems as though Bundy managed to intercept the 17-year-old and snatch her off the street. She was discovered nine days later by deer hunters in nearby Summit Park, 
which was a mountainous area in Utah. Mm. She had suffered a savage beating and multiple skull fractures from a blunt object and had a stocking tied around her neck. Yeah. 13 days after the, the abduction of Melissa, Laura Ann Amy would go missing. 17-year-old Laura had been at a cafe on Halloween night but left alone around midnight. There were a number of conflicting reports about Laura Amy's whereabouts on the night of October 31st, 1974. However, almost all of them mentioned that she was at the Naughty Pine Cafe for a period of time. The cafe in question was situated at 130 West Main Street in Lehigh. Shortly afterwards, she decided to leave the cafe and hitchhike to Robinson Park. Well, that's not a good idea. A witness stated they saw Laura Ann at Robinson Park in American Fork at around midnight. This was the last known sighting of the young girl. That night, it seems as though she was constantly journeying from one place to the next. The most likely explanation for this was that she was a restless 17-year-old who was trying to find the best place to hang out. This was long before you could just text people and find out what they were doing. Because it was Halloween, it was likely that the groups of teenagers were socializing and partying in a various number of areas. Robinson Park is 3.2 miles away from the Naughty Pine Cafe. If Laura did walk the route by foot, then it would have taken her roughly an hour to do so. Due to the distance involved, it is plausible that she attempted to hitchhike back to Lehigh after she was finished at the park. By that time, it was getting late and the temperature in the area had dipped to about 45 degrees. If Ted Bundy did pull his Volkswagen bug over to the side of the road and offer Laura a ride, she may have eagerly accepted his offer and she was never seen alive again. Nearly one month later, on November 27th, two hikers spotted the 17-year-old's remains at the bottom of this creek bank in American Fork Canyon. That morning, two university students were out looking for fossils when one of them noticed Laura's naked body. It's terrible. She was lying face down about 10 meters from the interstate. A nylon stocking had been tightly wrapped around her neck. Fearing that the perpetrator might still be in the area, the pair immediately left the scene and drove to the nearest ranger station. During the investigation, it was determined that the young girl's killer had struck her over the head, raped her, and then strangled her to death. Uh. Following the brutal murder, the offender dumped her body down the side of an embankment. Uh. Just eight Days later, Ted would strike again. Jeez. This disturbing timeline is clearly showing that Ted Bundy is beginning to spiral with his attacks occurring closer and closer. Yeah. On November 8th, 1974, Carol Durange was leaving a Murray, Utah shopping mall and heading to her car. A man approached her and identified himself as a police detective. Detective Bundacles. He told her that someone had broken into her car and she needed to check to see if any minor items were missing. After accompanying the stranger to her vehicle, she noticed nothing out of the ordinary, but be began to feel uneasy about the encounter. She asked for identification, and the man flashed a police badge. Officer Bundacles. He then suggested that she take a ride in his car, a 1968 Volkswagen Beetle, police issue. and ride to the police station so that she could file a report. As soon as Durange settled into the man's car, he drove away, and she refused his suggestion to fasten her seatbelt. Hmm. This was a move that might well have saved her life. Shit. The following quote is from Carol in an interview conducted years later. Quote, He headed down a side street and then he suddenly pulled over on the side of the curb up by an elementary school and that's when I just started freaking out. What are we doing? End quote. How terrifying. And then he grabbed my arm and he got one handcuff on one wrist and he didn't get the other one and the one was just there dangling. I had never been so frightened in my entire life. I thought, my God, my parents are never going to know what happened to me. Uh. 
Despite Bundy carrying a crowbar and a gun, Deranch was able to get out of the car. But Deranch's fight for her life didn't end there. I was able to open the door on my side and get out, and then he came out after me over the seat, and we just fought outside of the car. By the side of the road, Bundy tried to bludgeon her into submission. Uh. It was at this time that a car containing Wilbur and Mary Walsh approached them from the opposite direction. They slowed down to see what was going on. Oh, just pure evil shit. Deranch, still hysterical, leaped into the passing vehicle. Bundy's pair of handcuffs still dangled from her wrist. It is important to note at this point that Ted had unknowingly dropped the handcuff key during his struggle with Durant. Mm. This would eventually become his first big blunder in his killing spree, and we'll cover that detail shortly. On that same night, approximately two hours after his failed attempt with Carol... Ted would try again. Fuck you, bundacles. Deborah Kent was born on March 12, 1957 to Belva and Harvey Kent. She had four younger siblings that she cared for deeply. She was even described as being a mother hen to her siblings. She was friendly and kind to all she met. When thinking of her future, she had dreams of being in a position that would help people. She'd mentioned possibly going into the social work field. An example given to demonstrate this helpfulness and kindness was that Deborah would routinely put quarters into expired parking meters to save perfect strangers from tickets. Nice. She was always thinking of others. In 1974, Deborah was 17 years old and living in Bountiful, Utah. On the night of November 8, 1974, Deborah was attending a play at Viewmont High School with her parents. At 10.10 10 p.m., she left the school building as her parents had asked her to pick up her brother from a local skating rink. Oh, no. One witness claimed to have heard screaming around the time Deborah left the school building. Another claimed they saw a light-colored Volkswagen drive away from the school. When her parents exited the building to see that Deborah had not taken the car, they sounded the alarm and began the search for their daughter. Like so many other cases at the time, Deborah was initially considered a runaway, which, to be blunt, makes absolutely no sense. Mm-mm. Why would anyone run away in the middle of an errand their parents sent them on? I mean, that just it doesn't make sense. Besides, no. Deborah had left everything she owned behind, including the car she had access to. So the runaway theory should probably have never been seriously considered. Right. As time wore on and no sign of Deborah surfaced, police began to see similarities between crimes against women in the area, attempted abductions, missing persons, and murders. It seemed clear by that point that Deborah had been abducted from the high school parking lot, but by who and why? The only lead came when a woman named Carol DeBranche was found with handcuffs around one wrist. She had escaped a kidnapping attempt in which her abductor had placed the handcuffs on her. The key, matching those handcuffs, had been found in the Viewmont High School parking lot after Deborah's disappearance. Wow. In a supplementary report submitted by Officer Garner on that night, Shocking evidence was recovered that would eventually tie Bundy to the scene. This officer assisted many regular and reserve officers searching for the grounds at the Viewmont High School following Deborah's disappearance. It was noted that while making the search, a small handcuff key was found by Officer Loring in front of the doors on the south side of Viewmont High School. This was taken and placed into evidence. Three officers, including Officer Garner, went to the Murray Police Department as they had received information that there had been an attempted abduction there during that same evening at approximately 8 p.m. 
This information stated that an individual had approached the young girl at the Valley Fair Mall in Murray and identified himself as a police officer, showing her a badge indicating that there had been problems with car thefts in the area and solicited her support and assistance by having her accompany him in his vehicle, which was an older cream-colored V-dub. The Bundacle's shitbox. She stated that they left the area and he drove down a dark street and attempted to place a pair of handcuffs on her. The key, which was found at the Viewmont High School in the earlier search by this department, was checked with the handcuffs, and they found that the key worked perfectly. In fact, it appeared to be the key that was made for that set of handcuffs. It was noted that this key is a smaller key than that of the handcuffs that are normally carried by officers and is for a special type of handcuff that was made at the time in Taiwan. Mm. This is by far the most concretely connected case we have examined so far. First and foremost, Bundy confessed to kidnapping and murdering Deborah. Mm. In a death row interview, Bundy claimed to have abducted Deborah from the Viewmont High School parking lot and taken her back to his home. This is the only known instance of Bundy actually taking a victim to his home. Allegedly, Bundy kept her alive for 12 hours, killed her, and then waited another 12 hours before taking her remains to a mountainside and concealing them. He did not give any details regarding how he killed her or what happened during the period of the time she was in his home, but based on what we will soon learn about Bundy's depravity, we can guess. Yeah. Friendly friends are friends that you love. Hey, what's the matter, Barbar the Hippo? I'm just sad at the world. Uh, don't be sad. Yeah. Well, I am sad, so. Well, check out this cool samurai sword I just got at the fair. Oh, <laughs> oh you just killed Barbar. You chopped his head off. Yeah, that was pretty tight. Check me out. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. In his confession, Bundy used an atlas to point out the area in which he had placed Deborah's remains. Ten bags of bones were recovered by searchers over a period of months in that area. In those many bags, only one bone was human. A single human patella bone would prove that Bundy had told the gruesome truth. That's a kneecap. That's a kneecap, yes. In 1989, DNA testing was not commonplace, and the bone was simply assumed to be Deborah's and then given to the family as a sign of closure. Wow. The family kept the bone, not knowing that the investigating agencies had not closed Deborah's case. Years later, though, in 2015, an officer going through the missing persons cases would realize that Deborah was still considered a missing person. During this time, they would discover that the family had never buried the patella, presumed to belong to Deborah. In an effort to close the case, DNA testing was conducted on the patella, and in 2015, the Kents got the definitive news that the bone did indeed belong to their daughter. So by the end of November 1974, there were growing concerns that a sexual predator was targeting young girls in the state of Utah. Teenagers Melissa Ann Smith and Laura Amy had both turned up murdered, and Deborah Kent was still missing from her high school in Bountiful. Furthermore, 18-year-old Carol DeRange had recently escaped from a kidnapping attempt at a shopping mall in Murray. Upon realizing that a worrying pattern was emerging, the Salt Lake County Sheriff's Office began to review all of their cases involving missing girls. However, at this point, Bundy decided to mix things up a bit and head over the border to Colorado. On Sunday, January 12, 1975, Karen Eileen Campbell disappeared from the Wildwood Inn in Snowmass Village, Colorado, 400 miles southeast of Salt Lake City. Despite a widespread search of the inn and the surrounding area, the police were unable to find any trace of the missing 23-year-old. 
Karen Eileen Campbell was a registered nurse from Dearborn, Michigan. At the time of her murder, she was on vacation. Karen and her fiancé, Dr. Raymond Gadowski, were on a trip to Colorado with his son and daughter. Although Raymond was nine years older than her, the couple were madly in love. Karen also had a great relationship with his children. During the trip, Gadowski was planning on attending a cardiology conference in Aspen. While he was attending seminars, Karen took the kids sightseeing. That evening, Karen, Raymond, and the kids were relaxing in the lounge of the Wildwood Inn when she decided to go up to their room to get a magazine. When Karen exited the elevator on the second floor, she saw a group of doctors who she recognized from the cardiology seminar. After saying hello and making polite conversation with them, she continued down the walkway towards her room. This was the last time anyone saw Carolyn Campbell. After this exchange, she simply vanished. As time continued to pass by, her fiancé Raymond started to wonder why she was taking so long. Soon after, his confusion turned into anxiety and he began to worry that she had fallen and hurt herself. As a result, he decided to go upstairs and check on her. However, when he knocked on the door, Karen didn't answer. When Raymond retrieved a spare key from reception and entered the room, there was no sign of his fiancé. Furthermore, the magazine she went looking for was still in the room and there were no signs that anything sinister had taken place. Fearing the worst, Raymond decided to call the Aspen Police Department and report Karen missing. The responding officers reassured Raymond that she would probably show up later on after all the bars had closed. (laughs) Raymond disagreed with their assessment. He knew that her disappearance was extremely out of character. At the time, she was suffering from the flu. She had also turned down the chance to drink cocktails while they were having dinner with friends. The idea that she had just run off to a bar or some party without telling him just didn't make any sense. That night, the responding officers called Karen's description out over the radio and patrol cars kept an eye out for the missing woman. The next morning, Karen still had not returned. As a result, the police stepped it up a notch and decided to take a far more active approach. Throughout the day, officers questioned the hotel's guests and searched each room. However, this search turned out to be fruitless. Despite carrying out more than 100 interviews and probing every nook and cranny they could find, the police were unable to find any trace of Karen Campbell. Because she met Ted Bunnicles. Five weeks after Karen went missing, a local worker discovered a body less than three miles away from the Wildwood Inn. At around 9 a.m. on February 17th, Louise Oliver was driving along Owl Creek Road when she noticed that a number of birds were hovering around an area on a nearby snowbank. Upon realizing that something was attracting their attention, she decided to go investigate. After trudging roughly eight yards through the snow, the worker recoiled in horror. Before her lay the naked body of Karen Campbell. Her frozen remains had been laying there for nearly 40 days. Following the discovery of Karen's remains, it took more than 24 hours for her body to thaw out. In the meantime, the pathologist had used dental records to positively identify her. According to the coroner's report, her skull sustained multiple heavy fractures. Her assailant had also slit her left earlobe with a sharp instrument. What? By all accounts, this was a brutal assault. After examining the contents of Karen's stomach, authorities were able to determine that her murder took place shortly after she went missing. Due to decomposition and animal destruction, it was physically impossible to determine whether or not her attacker had raped her. However, because her clothes were missing, detectives were pretty confident that they were dealing with a sex crime. They were also mindful of the fact that women had been disappearing in the nearby states of Utah and Washington. In Anne Rule's book, The Stranger Beside Me, she claims that Karen's hyoid bone was broken. This is an injury that would suggest that she was strangled. However, 
um, I dug a little bit deeper, and in according to the coroner's report, the victim's tongue, larynx, and hyoid bone were actually missing what? due to animal Animals destruction. Better, yeah. yeah, so there's no way to know. That was just a random claim by Ann Rule, evidently. I see. Before his execution in 1989, Ted Bundy confessed to the murder of Karen Campbell. Although we do not know the exact details of the crime itself, we do know that Bundy admitted to doing his thing that night. The evidence also backs up his admission. On the day that Karen went missing, credit card receipts show that Bundy had purchased gas in the nearby town of Glenwood Springs, which is just 40 miles away from Aspen. Furthermore, the FBI analyzed his Volkswagen Beetle, and they discovered hairs that were microscopically similar to the hairs on Karen's head. Bundy confessed that Karen wasn't his first target. Bundy stated he was hobbling along the side of the pool on fake crutches and pretending to struggle with a pair of ski boots that he was carrying. Like a cunt. However, in this case, his first choice target completely ignored him. She did not reach out and offer him any help, and that decision almost certainly saved her life. Fuck. After a couple of minutes passed by, Karen spotted Bundy from the balcony on the second floor. From her perspective, a grown man with crutches was struggling out in the cold. Like a cunt. Feeling pity for him, she decided to call out to Bundy and ask him if he needed any assistance. Uh, Bundy, who clearly sensed the opportunity, said yes. At that stage, Karen took the elevator down to the first floor and walked out to the pool area. Once she arrived, Bundy asked her if she could help him carry his ski boots to his car. Although some hesitancy may have crept into Karen's mind about accompanying a complete stranger out into the parking lot, I'm sure it did. she was in a very awkward position. She, already offered. she had already offered this man help. Yeah. And journeyed down from the second floor. Shit. As a result, she may have found it too difficult to back out and say no. Preying on politeness. That's just awful. As soon as they reached his car, Bundy acted quickly. According to his confession, he struck her over the head with his ski boots. Fuck you, Bundacles. And then pushed her into the vehicle. At the time, it was late in the evening and the parking lot was completely dark. Judging by his previous abductions, it's also likely that he parked his Volkswagen Beetle in a strategic spot as far out of the way as possible. Like a cunt. I'm sorry, that's all I have this episode. According to the coroner's autopsy report, there was a slit on Karen's left ear. Yeah, what happened? It is possible that this slit... Mm -hmm was caused by a metal piece on one of his boots. Mm. Once Bundy had incapacitated Karen, he drove away from the hotel. He then searched for a remote spot where he could carry out the crime without the fear of being interrupted. The crime itself probably occurred inside his Volkswagen Beetle as this was an extremely cold night. Then, once the deed was done, Ugh. he stopped on Owl Creek Road and dumped her body in a field. Fuck you, Bunnacles. Although Bundy often buried his victims or left them in remote areas, this was not practical in this case because of the snow. I'm sorry to interrupt, but it sounds like we're talking about an animal when we're talking about Bunnacles. Like an actual wild animal. The Bunnacles' feeding habits include licking its own butt, sucking slime from the bottom of shit, and licking out the grease trap at Orbeez. This also explains why he dumped Karen's body so close to to the road. Because he's an animal. In other words, the weather was so cold that it acted as a deterrent. There were also a lot of police patrols that night. This may have convinced Ted that he needed to dispose of the evidence as soon as possible. Sadly, it seems as though Karen made the fatal mistake of pitying Ted Bundy. In the blink of an eye, the young nurse went from enjoying a vacation with her future husband to lying dead in a snowfield. Fucking awful. On March 15th, a hundred miles southeast of Snowmass in Vail, Colorado, 
26-year-old ski instructor Julie Cunningham disappeared while walking from her apartment to a dinner date with a friend. After quite a bit of digging, I realized there's not a lot of information available regarding Julie's life, so we'll go over some basics and conclusions I've drawn based on reading about her. Julie Cunningham was born on January 10th, 1949. She was friendly and outgoing, and the term social butterfly really seems fitting for her. It was later reported that Julie had gone through a tough breakup in early March of 1975, leading her to become depressed and despondent. Julie also had an interest in staying active, which was easy to achieve in Vail. She especially enjoyed skiing. In 1975, Julie worked two part-time jobs, one as a ski instructor and one as a cashier at a sporting goods store. That could be probably a pretty good life. In the early evening hours of March 15th, 1975, Julie left her apartment. She'd just gotten off the phone with her mother. The call had apparently mostly consisted of talk about Julie's recent heartbreak and getting things off her chest made her feel a bit better. Julie decided to head down to a local tavern where her roommate was already out for the night. She dressed in jeans, a brown jacket made of suede, boots, and a ski cap. But she never arrived at the tavern, and she never arrived back at her apartment that night. In fact, no sign of Julie Cunningham has ever been found. I dug as deep as I could into the investigation, but I couldn't find much about the steps that were taken to find Julie in the days, months, and even years after she went missing. I can only assume that the typical steps were taken. The missing persons reports, the searches, the appeals for tips, but I really couldn't find much at all online. The only things connecting Bundy to Julie's disappearance are the facts that Bundy was known to be in the Vale area at the time of the disappearance, the fact that Julie matched his victim profile, and Bundy's own confession. Right. The first two points are self-explanatory, so let's go into the details of the confession. The friendly friends are standing by. Bundy claimed that on March 15th, 1975, he stopped in Vail and fell back into his old ruse. He feigned a knee injury and hobbled down the street while carrying a pair of ski boots. The end game was to get someone, a young woman with dark hair, to help him do his car. And unfortunately, Julie was the kind soul to see him that night. He just preys on kind souls. She allegedly offered to help him do his car by carrying his ski boots for him. And of course, he took her up on her offer. In true Bundy fashion, however, he knocked her out when they reached his car. Hmm. He then handcuffed her before closing her in the trunk of his car. Then, Bundy claims he drove up near Rifle, Colorado. This drive is nearly 90 miles long and would have taken about an hour and a half. In the trunk. Once in Rifle, Bundy removed Cunningham from the trunk and strangled her to death. Jeez. He left her body in the desert there, but apparently returned weeks later to violate and bury uh, her. fuck, really? Friendly friends with bows and arrows. What you got there, Smiley? Ah, uh, it's just a bow and arrow, Bobo. Cool, how's that work? What, I just pull it back like this. Whoa. Hold on, what are you doing? Oh, we're playing with projectile weapons. Cool. It sure is. <laughs> Holy shit, you just shot Buddy in the face. Oh, it's little beaver face. <laughs> Buddy, I'm sorry. It was a pretty good shot, though. I know, right? Bundy offered no explanation as to why he took Julie so far away but the idea seems to be that it would be harder to connect the missing person's case to a body being found if it were further away from the point of abduction. So Bundy also offered no reason for burying her, saying it was just something he felt like doing. On April 6th, 1975, Denise Lynn Oliverson would go missing. Despite the amount of information out there about Denise's disappearance and Bundy's confession to her abduction and murder, 
There is little information available about what she was like in life. We know that she was born August 10th, 1950. She lived in Grand Junction, Colorado her whole life. And her friends described her as being a great, kind person. In 1970, she married a man named Joe Oliverson. In 1975, the marriage was going through a rocky patch. And that's about all we know, besides her vital statistics. I mean, Denise was last known to stand 5'4", weigh around 105 pounds. She had brown hair, blue eyes. On the afternoon of April 6, 1975, Denise left her Grand Junction area home in anger. She had apparently been in an argument with her husband that afternoon, and they could not reach any sort of understanding or resolution. I mean, those of us that are married, you know, we've all been there. Mm-hmm. You end up talking in circles, making no progress. I do. Only succeeded in getting more and more frustrated as the argument wears on. I've never heard of such behavior. In an effort to cool off, though... Denise removed herself from the situation. She hoped a bike ride would help clear her head. She apparently had a habit of riding to her parents' house when she needed a break from her husband. At least that's what he figured she was doing that afternoon. But that was the last time he would ever see her. Wearing a green long sleeve shirt with jeans and sandals, riding her yellow 10-speed bike away from him. Denise was reported missing on April 7th when her husband called her parents to see if she was planning on coming home, only to find out she'd never made it to their house in the first place. Of course. Police seemingly jumped into action, mapping out Denise's most likely route and searching the roadside along it. Their search was fruitful. Her bike was discovered only a block from her home beneath a viaduct. Her sandals were found alongside the bike, almost as if someone had tossed both items beneath the viaduct so they could not easily be spotted from the road. This all but confirmed the idea that foul play was involved in Denise's sudden roadside disappearance. Unfortunately for Denise's family, the leads began and ended with that discovery. They were forced to sit back and watch as the case grew cold. There didn't seem to be any reports or any tips or leads until Bundy confessed on death row in 1989. Oh, wow. Again, there were two parts here to link Bundy to Denise's disappearance. First, investigators discovered gas receipts that placed Bundy in the Grand Junction area on the day that Denise disappeared. On April 4th, 1975, he purchased gas in Golden, Colorado. On April 5th, he was at a gas station in Silverthorne, and then on April 6th, he visited Grand Junction. This was the exact same day the 24-year-old went missing. And second, of course, Bundy confessed to her abduction and murder. According to Bundy, he somehow got her into his car and strangled her to death. He then drove about five miles west of Grand Junction, which would have put him near the Utah border. He claimed to have placed Denise's body into the Colorado River. This is a point to be emphasized because Bundy typically either placed his victims in the wilderness or buried them. Like an animal. This evidence, coupled with his confession in 1989, led authorities to believe that Bundy was almost certainly behind the disappearance of Oliverson. Bundy's frequent stops at gas stations make a lot of sense if you consider the distance involved. During his five-day-long road trip across the state of Colorado, he traveled at least 1,035 miles. That's a lot of miles. During his trip to Golden... He's hauling ass. Yeah. During his trip to Golden, it's speculated that he returned to the body of Julie Cunningham, whom he murdered on March 15th. Yuck. 
Yeah. Denise's remains have not yet been discovered. Exactly one year from the abduction and murder of Roberta Kathleen Parks from Carvallis, Oregon, Bundy abducted a 12-year-old girl from her school. Oh, fuck you, Bundy. Lynette Dawn Culver was born on July 31st, 1962 in Renton, Washington. I couldn't find her mother's name, but we know her father was named Edward. Lynette was the youngest of three children, though one of the children passed away before Lynette was even born. The Culver family moved to Pocatello, Idaho in 1967 when Lynette was only five years old. By all accounts, she was a happy child who had no known issues. She was a little shy until she was comfortable with someone, and she had a good relationship with her parents and her older sister. In 1975, she stood around five foot two and weighed about 110 pounds. She had brown hair and hazel eyes, and she was in the seventh grade at Alameda Junior High, where she maintained good grades and had a budding social life. The only negative thing that I came across in my research is that Lynette had been known to occasionally skip school. I did that constantly. On May 6th, 1975, Lynette left Alameda Junior High during her lunch break. She hadn't mentioned having any plans to leave school to anyone that we know of, though this is not necessarily strange as Lynette had a habit of cutting class. There's just such better things to do. It is not known where she went that afternoon, but a few hours later, she was seen getting on a bus at Hawthorne Junior High School. The two middle schools are just over a mile away from each other for reference. The bus was headed to Fort Hall, roughly 10 miles north of Pocatello. It is unknown why Lynette would have been headed to Fort Hall, but this is the last substantiated sighting of Lynette. She was last seen wearing a burgundy jacket with a fur hood, a red checkered shirt, and jeans. The investigators initially, and well, this will come as a shock to precisely no one, <laughs> Nobody. considered Lynette a runaway. They had an unsubstantiated report that Lynette was last seen at a local Indian reservation. Other cryptic tips reinforce the idea that Lynette had run away from home for unspecified reasons, but not a single one of these tips were backed up with any evidence. They seem to be coming from people that just wanted the attention from being involved in an investigation, which is very frustrating. And common, too. Yeah, but as time wore on and the Culver family did not hear from Lynette, the idea that foul play was involved in her disappearance became more and more probable. Her family knew that Lynette would not could not have stayed gone for so long without contacting them. Even as the case grew cold, the family didn't lose hope. Lynette's father would fly to the location of any reported sighting of Lynette to investigate the area himself. Wow. Lynette's grandfather would return to Alameda Junior High again and again to search for clues that would shed even the slightest light onto what happened. They never, ever gave up on her. Hmm. So the one thing connecting Bundy to the disappearance of Lynette Culver is his confession. He claimed he drove to Pocatello, Idaho with the intention of finding a young woman to murder. He came across Lynette at some point and abducted her. He then claimed to have taken her to a hotel room where he raped and drowned her. He then drove to the nearby Snake River where he disposed of her body. While Bundy didn't know the name of his victim, Lynette's missing persons case was the only one from Pocatello that fit Bundy's description. Hmm. He claimed to have known that his victim's family had recently moved across Pocatello, which is not something that somebody who hadn't spoken to Lynette or the family would have known, unless they had been observing the Culvers for an extended period of time. Hmm. This doesn't seem possible based on the established movements of Bundy at the time. Of course, 
The case was moderately publicized, so it is perhaps possible that Bundy had familiarized himself with the case to, but I, I don't know, mess with the police, mm. maybe, I don't know, inflict harm. I'm not sure why Bundy would lie about murdering a 12-year-old girl, but I certainly wouldn't put it past him. No. Bundicles the liar. Yes, Cunty McBundicles. Even though Bundy confessed to Lynette's abduction and murder, the case is far from wrapped up. No sign of Lynette has ever been found, and her family struggles to find closure without concrete proof of her moving on. In mid-May, three of Bundy's Washington State DES co-workers, including that secret girlfriend of his, Carol Boone, mm -hmm. visited him in Salt Lake and stayed for a week in his apartment. He subsequently spent a week in Seattle with Elizabeth Clover in early June, and they discussed getting married the following Christmas. Thanks. Again, Clover made no mention of her multiple discussions with authorities in King County and Salt Lake County. Bundy disclosed neither his ongoing relationship with Boone nor the concurrent romance with a Utah law student known in various accounts as Kim Andrew or Sharon Hour. So he may have been even this dating. Guy, did he ever sleep? I don't know. The guy's insane. His wiener never slept. So Bundy would strike again just six weeks later, this time in Provo, Utah. Again, there isn't a lot of information about Susan Curtis online. We have no information about her childhood or her family, but she was born on May 18th, 1960. We know her mom's name was Marilyn and that she had a sister. We know that Susan went by Sue in her personal relationships and based on what we know about her activities, she was very determined and responsible. For example, she rode her bike 50 miles from Bountiful to Utah to attend the youth conference that she disappeared from. Jeez. She was very athletic and involved in extracurriculars at Woods Cross High School. Though there were some reports of Sue having run away from home in the past, she seemed relatively happy and always returned home of her own accord. In 1975, she was 15 years old. She stood five foot seven and weighed about 120 pounds. She had brown hair and hazel eyes. She had pierced ears and also had braces at the time of her appearance. And that's all we really know about Sue. As I just shared, Sue had ridden her bike from Bountiful to Provo, Utah, to attend a conference at Brigham Young University. June 27, 1975 was the first day of the conference. She attended a formal ball that night, which was meant to kick off the conference activities. She was dressed for the occasion in a floor-length yellow dress. She was last seen departing the party after telling some friends she wanted to go back to her room and brush her teeth. Her room was about a quarter mile away from the hall, in which the party was held, and it's not known for sure if she made it back to her room, though the toothbrush was dry and clearly had not been used when the investigators arrived to search for signs of Sue. The investigation was seemingly taken seriously once Sue's disappearance was noted, which is a surprising change of pace. Thank goodness. Yeah. I feel the need to point this out after having so many cases considered runaways right off the bat. And Sue did have a history of leaving home unannounced, running away, but that didn't stop investigators from taking the disappearance seriously. And this is likely due to the fact that at this point, there was a stream of missing young women in Utah and investigators knew that the cases were likely linked and they had no time to waste. Newspaper articles issued calls for information and encouragement for those with information to report their tips to the Brigham Young University Security Office. 
The only sighting that surfaced was from a professor at BYU who claimed Susan was at the back of his classroom attempting to sell a textbook. What? Though he did identify Susan from a provided photo, the sighting is highly contested. This was seemingly the only lead investigators were able to find, and it led nowhere. Hmm. The case eventually grew cold, and it remained that way all the way up until 45 minutes prior to Bundy's execution Jesus. when he confessed to abducting and murdering Sue. Damn. And this is another one of those maddeningly vague Bundy confessions. Right. He confessed to taking a young girl from the BYU campus in early June 1975. He then was given maps to identify where he had hidden her remains. Bundy pointed to a random spot just south of Price, Utah, which is about 60 miles southeast of Provo. He was detailed in giving directions to the burial site, but details of the abduction and actual murder were not offered. Sue's murder was one of the last Bundy confessed to before heading to the electric chair. After the confession, investigators in Utah followed those detailed directions to the supposed site of burial armed with metal detectors as Sue had braces at the time of her disappearance. Mm. Even if she were buried, the metal detectors would have picked up on them. Unfortunately, nothing was found at that site or anywhere else. The location of Sue Curtis's remains remain unknown. In Washington state, investigators are still struggling at this point to analyze the Pacific Northwest murder spree that had ended as abruptly as it begun. In an effort to make sense of an overwhelming ma mass of data, they resorted to the then innovative strategy of compiling a database. They used the King County payroll computer, a huge primitive machine by contemporary standards, but the only one available for their use. After inputting the many lists they had compiled of classmates and acquaintances of each victim, Volkswagen owners named Ted, known sex offenders, and so on, they queried the computer for coincidences. Out of thousands of names, 26 turned up on four lists. One was Ted Bundy, i.e. Cunty McBundicles. Detectives also manually compiled a list of their 100 best suspects, and Bundy was on that list as well. He was literally at the top of the pile of suspects when word came from Utah of his arrest. Oh, wow. And now we're going to go on to his arrest. Okay. Oh, good. They finally got this dipshit. Yeah. On August 16, 1975, Bundy was arrested by Utah Highway Patrol Officer Bob Hayward in Granger, a suburb of Salt Lake City. Hayward observed Bundy cruising a residential area in his Volkswagen Beetle during the pre-dawn hours and fleeing at high speed after seeing the patrol car. Get that cunt. He noticed that the Volkswagen's front passenger seat had been removed. Among the reddest of flags. And placed on the rear seats. And he searched the car. He found a ski mask, a second mask fashioned from pantyhose, yeah. a crowbar, handcuffs, trash bags, a coil of rope, an ice pick, and other items initially assumed to be burglary tools. Bundy explained that the ski mask was for skiing, he had found the handcuffs in a dumpster, and the rest were common household items. However, Detective Jerry Thompson remembered a similar suspect and car description from the November 1974 Durant kidnapping and Bundy's name from Clover's phone call a month later. In a search of Bundy's apartment, police found a guide to Colorado ski resorts with a check mark by the Wildwood Inn and a brochure that advertised the Viewmont High School play in Bountiful 
where Kent had disappeared. But charges of evading police weren't enough to keep him detained for long, and Bundy is soon released on his own recognizance. Bundy later said that searchers had missed a hidden collection of Polaroid photographs of his victims, which he destroyed after he was released. Salt Lake City Police placed Bundy under 24-hour surveillance, and Thompson flew to Seattle with two other detectives to interview Clover. She told them that in the year prior to Bundy's move to Utah, she had discovered objects that she just couldn't understand in her house and in Bundy's apartment. These items included crutches, a bag of plaster of Paris Mm. that he admitted to stealing from a medical supply house, and a meat cleaver that was just never used for cooking. Additional objects included surgical gloves, Mm -hmm. an oriental knife, decorative knife in a wooden case Mm. that he kept in his glove compartment, and a sack full of women's clothing. There's some red flags in there. Bundy was perpetually in debt, and Clover suspected that he had stolen almost everything of significant value that he possessed. When she confronted him over a new TV and stereo, he warned her, If you tell anyone, I'll break your fucking neck. Whoa. She said Bundy became very upset when she considered cutting her hair, which was long and parted in the middle. Mm. She would sometimes awaken in the middle of the night to find him under the covers with a flashlight examining her body. Okay, pretty creepy. He kept a lug wrench taped halfway up the middle in the trunk of her car, which was another Volkswagen Beetle, which he often borrowed. And he kept this for protection. What? Yeah. Uh, I guess he had a protective lug wrench with tape on it. Okay. The detectives confirmed that Bundy had not been with Clover on any of the nights during which the Pacific Northwest victims had vanished, nor on the days Ott and Nasland, Nasland were abducted from the Lake Sammamish State Park. Shortly thereafter, Clover was interviewed by Seattle homicide detective Kathy McChesney and learned of the existence of Stephanie Brooks and her brief engagement to Bundy around Christmas in 1973. Terrifying. In late August or early September 1975, Bundy was baptized into the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, although he was not an active participant in services (laughs) and ignored most of the church's restrictions. Yeah. Obviously. (laughs) My Lord Satan, I brought the file. Now tell me more about this Ted Bundy. He fucked corpses. Right, right, but how was he as far as following Christian doctrine? Uh, He ignored most of the Christian's restrictions. Mm, Good, good. He would later be excommunicated by the LDS Church when his terrible crimes were made public. When asked his religious preference after his arrest, Bundy answered Methodist. Really? The religion of his childhood. Nailed it. In September, Bundy sold his Volkswagen Beetle to a Midvale teenager. Utah police impounded it, and FBI technicians dismantled and searched it. They found hairs matching samples obtained from Campbell's body. Later, they also identified hair strands microscopically indistinguishable from those of Smith and Durant. FBI lab specialist Robert Neal concluded that the presence of the hair strands in one car matching three different victims who had never met one another would be a coincidence of mind-boggling rarity. Makes sense. On October 2nd, detectives put Bundy into a lineup. Durant immediately identified him as Officer Roseland, and witnesses from Bountiful recognized him as the stranger at the Viewmont High School Auditorium. 
There was insufficient evidence to link him to Kent, whose body was never found, but more than enough evidence to charge him with aggravated kidnapping and attempted criminal assault in the Durant case. He was freed on $15,000 bail paid by his parents and spent most of the time between indictment and trial in Seattle, living in Clover's house. Seattle police had insufficient evidence to charge him in the Pacific Northwest murders, but kept him under close surveillance. Quote, when Ted and I stepped out onto the porch to go somewhere, Clover wrote, so many unmarked police cars started up that it sounded like the beginning of the Indy 500. Uh-huh. End quote. In November, three principal Bundy investigators, Jerry Thompson from Utah, Robert Keppel from Washington, and Michael Fisher from Colorado, met in Aspen, Colorado, and exchanged information with 30 other detectives and prosecutors from five states. While officials left the meeting, which would later be referred to as the Aspen Summit, convinced that Bundy was the murderer they sought, they agreed that more hard evidence would be needed before he could be charged with any of the murders. Mm. In February 1976, Bundy stood trial for the Durant kidnapping. On the advice of his attorney, John O'Connell, he waived his right to a jury due to the negative publicity surrounding the case. Yeah, there's going to be some of that. After a four-day bench trial and a weekend of deliberation, Judge Stuart Hansen Jr. found him guilty of kidnapping and assault. In June 1976, he was sentenced to one to 15 years in the Utah State Prison. In October... He was found hiding in the bushes in the prison yard carrying an escape kit, road maps, airline schedules, and a social security card, and then had to spend several weeks in solitary confinement. Later that month, Colorado authorities charged him with Campbell's murder. After a period of resistance, he waived extradition proceedings and was transferred to Aspen in January 1977. On June 7, 1977, Bundy was transported 40 miles from the Garfield County Jail in Glenwood Springs to Pitkin County Courthouse in Aspen for a preliminary hearing. Ted had elected to serve as his own attorney and because of this was excused by the judge from wearing handcuffs or leg shackles. During a court recess, he asked to visit the courthouse's law library to research his case. Mm -hmm. While in the library, shielded from behind a bookcase, the guards did not notice that he had opened a window and jumped to the ground from the second story, injuring his right ankle as he landed. Mm -hmm. It wasn't long, though, before his escape from the courthouse was discovered and law enforcement began their search. After discarding an outer layer of clothing, Bundy walked through Aspen as roadblocks were being set up on its outskirts and then hiked southward onto Aspen Mountain. Near its summit, he broke into a hunting cabin and stole food, clothing, and a rifle. The following day, he left the cabin and continued south towards the town of Crested Butte, but became lost in the forest. For two days, he wandered aimlessly on that mountain, evidently completely missing two trails that led downward to his intended destination. Mm. On June 10th, he broke into a camping trailer on Maroon Lake, 10 miles south of Aspen, taking food and a ski parka. But instead of continuing southward, he walked back towards Aspen, eluding roadblocks and search parties along the way. Three days later, he stole a car at the edge of the Aspen golf course. Cold, sleep-deprived, and in constant pain from his sprained ankle, Bundy drove back into Aspen, where two police officers noticed his car weaving in and out of its lane and pulled him over. Oh, shit. 
At this point, he'd been on the run for six days. In the car, they discovered maps of the mountain area around Aspen that prosecutors were using to demonstrate the location of Campbell's body. Holy shit. As, so as his own attorney, Bundy had rights of discovery. So he was able to acquire those maps. And indicating that his escape was not a spontaneous act, but actually had been planned. Yeah. Back in jail in Glenwood Springs, Bundy ignored the advice of friends and legal advisors to stay put. The case against him, already weak at best, was deteriorating steadily as pretrial motions consistently resolved in his favor and significant bits of evidence were ruled inadmissible. A more rational defendant might have realized that he stood a good chance of acquittal and that beating the murder charge in Colorado would probably have dissuaded other prosecutors. And with as little as a year and a half to serve on the Durange conviction, had Ted persevered, he would have been a free man. Instead, Bundy assembled a new escape plan. Of course he did. What a dipshit. 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 He acquired a detailed floor plan of the Garfield County Jail and a hacksaw blade from other inmates. Shit. And accumulated... <laughs> How'd they, they get it in there? I don't know. I hid this up my butt. <laughs> All right. What you got up in there, Robin Bob? Oh, I got a jar of mama's potato salad with the raisins in it. You got a hacksaw? Do I got a hacksaw? Of course I got a hacksaw. Yikes. Yeah. And he had accumulated $500 in cash, smuggled in over a six-month period. In a butt. He later said, uh, by visitors. Boone, in particular. In visitors' butts. In visitors' butts. Yeah. During the evenings, while other prisoners were showering, he sawed a hole about one square foot between the steel-reinforcing bars in his cell's ceiling. And, having lost 35 pounds was able to squeeze through it into the crawl space above. Like a cunt. In the weeks that followed, he made a series of practice runs exploring the space. Cunt-like. Multiple reports from an informant of moving within the ceiling during the night were not investigated. That's on the police. Mm -hmm. By late 1977, Bundy's impending trial had become a cause celebre in the small town of Aspen, and Bundy filed a motion for a change of venue to Denver. Now... A cause celebre. I looked that up because I didn't know what that was. Le cause celebre. And it's an issue or incident arousing widespread controversy, outside campaigning, and heated public debate. So typically, Ted claimed the media coverage had tainted his chance at a fair trial from his peers. <laughs> so, and, and they agreed. You know, they, yeah. they, they moved him. They're probably right. Yeah. Still all On December 23rd, the Aspen trial judge granted that request, but to Colorado Springs where juries had actually historically been hostile to murder suspects. Good. On the night of December 30th, with most of the jail staff on Christmas break and nonviolent prisoners on furlough with their families, Bundy piled books and files in his bed, covered them with a blanket to simulate his sleeping body, and climbed into that crawl space. Fucking bundacles. He broke through the ceiling into the apartment of the chief jailer, who was out for the evening with his wife, oh, shit. changed into street clothes from the jailer's closet, oh, shit. and just walked out the front door to freedom. Wow. Well, he's still cunty McBundacles to me. After stealing a car, Bundy drove eastward out of Glenwood Springs, but the car soon broke down in the mountains on Interstate 70. A passing motorist gave him a ride to, into Vail, 60 miles to the east. Didn't watch the news, huh? <laughs> From there, he caught a bus to Denver, where he boarded a morning flight to Chicago. 
Back in Glenwood Springs, the jail's skeleton crew didn't discover the escape until noon on December 31st, more than 17 hours later. By then, Bundy was already in Chicago. From Chicago, Bundy traveled by train to Ann Arbor, Michigan, where he was later identified as drinking in a local tavern on January 2nd. Five days later, he stole a car and drove south to Atlanta, where he boarded a bus and arrived in Tallahassee, Florida on the morning of January 8th. He stayed for one night at a hotel before he rented a room under the alias Chris Hagen, at a boarding house near the Florida State University campus. Bundy later said that he initially decided to find legitimate employment and refrain from further criminal activity, knowing he could probably remain free and undetected in Florida indefinitely, as long as he didn't attract the attention of the police. Turning over a new leaf, that guy. But he gave up on this idea after one job application at a construction site when he was asked to produce identification. Fuck leaves, especially new ones, and also turning them. He reverted back to his old habits of shoplifting and stealing money and credit cards from women's wallets left in shopping carts at local grocery stores. Wow. He didn't want to have to prove who he was. Cunty McBundicles. After traveling across a number of states, Bundy reached Tallahassee, Florida, where he tried to lure a woman at a local bar. But the woman listened to her instincts and brushed him off. Nice. The encounter with that woman at the bar left Bundy hunting for his prey more desperately than ever. And in that search, he arrived at the Chi Omega house at around 3 a.m. on January 14, 1978, when one of the most brutal attacks in serial killer history happened. Oh, shit. Friendly friends have ants and honey. Hey, what are you doing with all those ants, Smiley? I'm pulling them all over Buddy the Beaver. I don't, I don't. Did you cover them with honey? I'm glad you asked that, Bobo the Hippo. Okay. Fuck yes, I did. They're in my ears and my eyes. It was a weekend, and most of the sorority sisters were out except for four women. Kathy Kleiner Rubin, Margaret Bowman, Karen Chandler, and Lisa Levy. When Bundy entered through the back door of the house, the lock had been broken on the door for a few days. Bundy watched someone going through that door and saw that it was not locked, and he just waited. There was a pile of wood outside the door and that the sorority had used for the fireplace. Around 2.45 a.m., Bundy picked up a log and walked right in, through the house, and then bludgeoned Margaret Bowman, 21, with a piece of oak firewood as she slept. He then garroted her with a nylon stocking. When he left, he pulled the sheets up to her neck to make it look like she was sleeping, according to Kathy, who would survive her attack. After killing Margaret, Bundy went into Lisa's room, where she too was alone. He then entered the bedroom of 20-year-old Lisa Levy and beat her unconscious, strangled her, tore one of her nipples, bit deeply into her left buttock, and sexually assaulted her with a hair mist bottle. Fuck. After killing both of these women, Bundy entered Kathy's room where she was sleeping with her roommate, Karen. This is a quote. What woke me up was between the beds we had little trunks where we had our books stacked. He didn't see it and tripped over it, and it made a lot of noise. So now I'm opening my eyes and trying to focus my eyes not knowing what I was looking at. And there was a dark shape, a dark figure that I couldn't make out. The very next moment, Bundy attacked Kathy with a log. This is another quote. I saw his arm raise up and then he hit me. He brought it down and hit my face with such force that it shattered my jaw. It cut my cheek right open and you could see the inside of my mouth, she says, end quote. Ted then turned towards her roommate, Karen, 
hit her and rendered her unconscious. According to the authorities, Bundy had no intention of leaving behind a survivor, so when he heard Kathy moaning in pain, he turned towards her and hit her again. But as luck was on her, her and her roommate's side, a car light lit up the bedroom, making Bundy freeze and run. Quote, when the light showed up in our room, he left. I stayed there, crunched in a ball because I thought he would come again. I thought he would come back and attack me again. And that's when I was scared, Kathy said, end quote. After the attack, one of the sorority sisters found a blood-covered Karen standing in the hallway. Another quote. They came into the room, turned on the light, and that's when they saw me in my bed, bloodied. They called 911. I was in and out of consciousness. I saw one officer, and that made me feel so safe because I was sure that person was not going to come back. End quote. Bundy escaped, but not before being seen by sorority sister Nita Neary, who came through the back door and saw Bundy as he was exiting the sorority house. Tallahassee detectives determined that the four attacks took place in a total of less than 15 minutes, within earshot of more than 30 witnesses who heard nothing. After leaving the sorority house, Bundy broke into the basement apartment eight blocks away and attacked Florida State University student Cheryl Thomas. What the fuck? Dislocating her shoulder and fracturing her jaw and skull in five places. She was left with permanent deafness and equilibrium damage that ended her dance career. On her bed, police found a semen stain and a pantyhose mask containing two hairs similar to Bundy's in class and characteristic. On February 8th, Bundy drove 150 miles east to Jacksonville in a stolen Florida State University van. In a parking lot, he approached 14-year-old Leslie Parmenter, the daughter of a Jacksonville Police Department chief of detectives, identifying himself as Richard Burton from the fire department, but ran when Parmenter's older brother arrived and confronted him. That same afternoon, he backtracked 60 miles west to Lake City. At Lake City Junior High School the following morning, 12-year-old Kimberly Diane Leach was called to her homeroom by a teacher to collect the purse that she had forgotten at her desk, but she never returned to class. Seven weeks later, after an intensive search, her partially mummified remains were found in a pig farrowing shed near Sewanee River State Park. 35 miles northwest of Lake City. She appeared to have been raped and then killed by deep lacerations to the neck with a knife. On February 12th, Ted was broke and unable to pay his overdue rent and began to realize that the police were closing in on him. Bundy stole another car and left Tallahassee driving west across the Florida panhandle. Three days later, at around 1 a.m., he was stopped by Pensacola police officer David Lee near the Alabama state line after a check showed his vehicle was stolen. When told he was under arrest, Bundy kicked Lee's legs out from under him and took off running. Lee fired two warning shots, but then ran after Bundy and tackled him. The two struggled over Lee's gun before the officer finally subdued and arrested Bundy. In the stolen vehicle were three sets of IDs belonging to the female Florida State University students, 21 stolen credit cards, and a stolen television set. I'm not sure what's up with this guy in TVs. He just wants to steal every TV he sees. It's insane. Also were found a pair of dark-rimmed non-prescription glasses and a pair of plaid slacks, later identified as a disguise worn by Richard Burton from the fire department Mm -hmm. in Jacksonville. 
As Lee transported his suspect to jail, unaware that he had just arrested one of FBI's 10 most wanted fugitives, he heard Bundy say, quote, I wish you had just killed me. Fuck you, cunty McBundicles. Following a change of venue to Miami, Bundy stood trial for the Chi Omega homicides and assaults in June of 1979. The trial was covered by 250 reporters from five continents and was the first to be televised nationally in the United States. Hmm. Despite the presence of five court-appointed attorneys, Bundy again handled much of his own defense. What a cunt. From the beginning, he sabotaged the entire defense effort out of spite, distrust, and grandiose delusion. Total cunt. Ted was facing murder charges with a possible death sentence, and all that mattered to him, apparently, that he was in charge. What a loser. Dipshit. Yeah. According to Mike Minerva, a Tallahassee public defender and member of the defense team, a pre-trial plea bargain was negotiated in which Bundy would plead guilty to killing Levy, Bowman, and Leach in exchange for a firm 75-year prison sentence. Prosecutors were amenable to the deal because prospects of losing at trial were very good. Mm -hmm. Bundy, on the other hand, saw the plea deal not only as a means of avoiding the death penalty, but also as a tactical move. He could enter his plea and then wait a few years for evidence to disintegrate or become lost and for witnesses to die, move on, or retract their testimony. Once the case against him had deteriorated beyond repair, he could file a post-conviction motion to set aside the plea and secure an acquittal. But at the last minute, however, Bundy refused the deal. It made him realize he was going to have to stand up in front of the whole world and say he was guilty. Hmm. And he just couldn't do it. Well, he is a massive coward. I think we know that about him. At trial... Crucial testimony came from Chi Omega sorority members Connie Hastings, who placed Bundy in the vicinity of the sorority house that evening, and Nita Neary, who saw him leaving the house clutching the murder weapon. Thanks. Incriminating physical evidence included impressions of the bite wounds that Bundy had inflicted on Levy's left buttock, which forensic odontologist Richard Suveron and Lowell Levine matched to castings of Bundy's teeth. The jury deliberated for less than seven hours before convicting Bundy on July 24, 1979 of the Bowman and Levy murders, three counts of attempted first-degree murder for the assaults of Kleiner, Chandler, and Thomas, and two counts of burglary. Trial Judge Edward Cowart imposed death sentences for the murder convictions. Mm-hmm. Six months later, a second trial took place in Orlando for the abduction and murder of Leach. Bundy was found guilty once again after less than eight hours deliberation due principally to the testimony of an eyewitness who saw him leading Leach from the schoolyard to his stolen van. Important material evidence included clothing fibers with an unusual manufacturing error found in the van and on Leach's body, which matched fibers from the jacket Bundy was wearing when he was arrested. Oh, shit. During the penalty phase of the Leach trial, Bundy took advantage of an obscure Florida law providing that a marriage declaration in court in the presence of a judge constituted a legal marriage. <laughs> when he was questioning Carol Ann Boone, remember he's acting as his own attorney here. Yeah. Uh, as he was questioning Carol Ann Boone, his secret girlfriend from years before, he asked her to marry him. Yes. Carol had moved to Florida to be near Bundy, had testified on his behalf during both trials, and was again testifying on his behalf as a character witness. Wow. 
She then accepted his proposal, and Bundy turned and declared to the court that they were now legally married. Weird. On February 10th, 1980, Bundy was sentenced for a third time to death by electrocution. As the sentence was announced, he reportedly stood and shouted, Tell the jury they were wrong. (laughs) (laughs) No, we won't be doing that. This third death sentence would be the one ultimately carried out nearly nine years later. Perhaps the most fascinating part of Bundy's Florida trials were his own post-sentence comments, as well as Judge Court's remarks, which have actually gone viral since that Netflix documentary. I don't know if our listeners are familiar with it. I'm sure some of them are, yeah. I watched it, and uh, it's very interesting. But the name of it is Conversations with the Killer, the Ted Bundy Tapes. When that came out, upon hearing his sentence, Bundy said, quote, I'm not going to ask for mercy, for I find it somewhat absurd to ask for mercy for something I did not do. So I will be tortured for and will suffer for and will receive a pain for the act, but I will not share the burden for the guilt. End quote. Go fuck yourself, Ted. Of course, 10 years later, on the evening of his execution, on January 24th, 1989... It's like, okay. Bundy confessed to killing 30 women. My bad. I was just kind of drunk. But Judge Cowart's statement was even more controversial. This is his quote. It's a tragedy for this court to see such a total waste, I think, of humanity that I've ever seen in this court. What? You're a bright young man. You would have made a good lawyer. What? (laughs) You went another way, partner. End quote. Wow. Isn't that crazy? Wow. In October 1981, Boone gave birth to a daughter and named Bundy as the father. Oh, no. While conjugal visits were not allowed at the Florida State Prison in Rayford, where Bundy was incarcerated, inmates were known to pool their money in order to bribe the guards to allow them intimate time alone with their female visitors. Then, so they were married. Um, gave, she gave birth to a daughter. They did divorce in 1986, though. Well, she came to our senses. Well, good for her. Ted Bundy was sentenced to death by the electric chair, and he would be executed on January 24th, 1989. Ted Bundy's death and execution were famously a national event for onlookers outside the prison gates and millions of viewers watching from home. They should have shot him from a cannon into the sun, but nobody ever listens to me. Burn Bundy Burn adorned protest signs and comprised the chants of hundreds. The whole world was watching, eager to bear witness to Ted Bundy's death. And there I was, selling t-shirts like a fuckwad. Ted Bundy's relationship with Elizabeth Clofer and wife Carol Ann Boone, his grisly murders, and his heavily televised trial have all been thoroughly explored. Meanwhile, these aspects have drawn attention away from arguably the most important death in this whole saga. His own, in my opinion. Hmm. So how did he die? He rode the lightning. Information collected from Elizabeth Klopfer's memoir, The Phantom Prince, My Life with Ted Bundy, ends shortly before his 1989 execution. This book was actually published under the pseudonym Elizabeth Kendall. That's where that other name comes in. Okay. Ted Bundy admits his crimes to her over the phone shortly before his execution. This is a quote from him. The force would just consume me. Like, one night, I was walking by the campus, and I followed this sorority girl. I didn't want to follow her. I didn't do anything but follow her, and that's how it was. I'd be out late at night and follow people like that. I'd try not to, but I'd do it anyway. End quote. 
Sheesh. When he called Clover shortly after his Florida arrest, he was in tears. According to her memoir, he was desperate to take responsibility for his actions. I'm sure. When he admitted his violent deeds to his former lover, she replied by saying, I love you. Did not see that coming. She wasn't sure how to respond, she said. Differently than that? I tried to suppress it, he told her. It was taking more and more of my time. That's why I didn't do well in school. My time was being used trying to make my life look normal. But I wasn't normal. You were a waste of carbon. Like many death row inmates across the United States, Ted Bundy spent years in prison before his inevitable execution. Some say Ted Bundy was part of the inspiration for the Hannibal uh, character in Silence of the Lambs. We've heard that a few times. During this time, Ted actually assisted investigators during their search for the Green River Killer. Hmm. Evidently, the books Red Dragon and Silence of the Lambs, wherein Hannibal helps detectives nab serial killers, were partly inspired by the interactions between Ted Bundy and Detective Robert Keppel. In 1984, Bundy reached out to Keppel from prison to offer assistance in catching the Green River Killer, a then-faceless predator, later identified as Gary Ridgway, who killed almost 50 prostitutes in Seattle. We've got some fucked up poobahs in the Northwest. Bundy's theories about the killer were eerily accurate. I bet. He knew Ridgway would keep returning to where he buried his victims and recommended a clever way to catch him. Sheesh. Keppel also suspected that Bundy's guesses about the Green River Killer were largely a projection of himself. Yes. However, Bundy also saw himself in Keppel because they were both hunters of humans. Hello, sportsman. His respect for the detective prompted him to open up about his own crimes. Bundy eventually exhausted all of his appeals and the final convictions ultimately convinced him to confess. Though he admitted to a staggering 30 murders... Experts still believe the body count was much, much higher. But on the eve of his execution in 1989, he finally confessed to his deeds. True to his slick-talking and articulate nature, Bundy wound up providing graphic details about the violent sexual nature of his many murders. This is a quote. When he said he was clearing his soul at the end, he wanted me to know that he practiced necrophilia. FBI agent Bill Hagmeyer says Bill had spoken to Ted several times in the weeks leading up to his execution quote that was something he never talked about even in the third person before that you know the truth is terrible end quote the truth is in addition to raping and murdering at least 30 women Bundy also sexually violated many of their corpses after ending their lives Fucking. severed some of their heads and positioned their bodies in disturbing poses friendly friends are, oh fuck they're not coming newly released information shows FBI investigators ad- examining the body of one of Bundy's victims and they point to post-mortem mutilation uh, to the breast area but while Bundy didn't directly mention his necrophilia earlier during his incarceration he had dropped hints to Mashad during their conversations about what might motivate a murderer to partake in such heinous acts in the third person so those third person pseudo confessions right yeah dipshit perhaps this person hoped that through violence through this violent series of acts if with every murder leaving a person of this type hungry unfulfilled would also leave him with the obviously irrational belief that if the next time he did it he would be fulfilled Bundy said and the next time he did it 
he would be fulfilled. I wonder what's filling him now. Hey, what is it, Satan, my lord? Well, Azazel, I've been getting lots of letters from people. Yes. Requests, really. I see. And the main request is they want me to shove more hardcore things up Ted Bundy's ass. Oh, I got you, fam. In his 2014 book, Why We Love Serial Killers, The Curious Appeal of the World's Most Savage Murders, Author and professor Scott Bond touched on the mindset that drove Bundy's postmortem acts by including a devastating quote from the man himself. Quote, when Ted Bundy was asked why he took Polaroid photos of his victims, he said, when you work hard to do something right, you don't want to forget it. Wow. Yeah. And thanks to his actions, the American public will also not soon forget Bundy's reprehensible actions. Bundy was unsettling on many levels. And the way he behaved towards corpses made his crimes all the more disturbing. Mm -hmm. When asked by psychologist Al Carlisle about his necrophilia, Bundy explained that he wanted to possess the essence of the victim. Mm -hmm. Why his urge to possess people took such a ghastly form is anyone's guess. But neuroscientist Jack Perriman had a pretty intriguing idea. Based on records featured in conversations with a killer, the Ted Bundy tapes, Pemmick concluded that Bundy's acts were rooted in a desire for intimacy. I took a wrong turn somewhere. Specifically, he suggested the killer was trying to recreate the closeness he lost after a traumatic breakup with his girlfriend, Diane Edwards. Wow. That very, very first one. I remember that, but I, that's just so ridiculous. Get over it. <laughs> Bundy placed their relationship on a pedestal, Dumb. idealizing Edwards' looks and the time they had spent together. He later felt that a corpse could be anyone he wanted them to be. Blech. Bundy enjoyed watching his victims decompose. Oh. In some instances, he apparently shampooed their hair and painted their fingernails during the decomposition process. Dude. Bundy also kept the heads of 12 of his victims. He decapitated them with a hacksaw, then washed their hair, applied makeup to them, and engaged in sexual acts with the skulls. Perhaps in some twisted, sadistic way, he viewed his victims as romantic partners who couldn't leave him. After these shocking and horrifying confessions, the time had finally come. But not before Ted's last meal and a citizen's celebratory tailgating event outside the prison walls. Okay, that's kind of weird. On his last night alive, Ted Bundy called his mother twice. As hundreds set up camp outside to drink beer, howled chants for the killer to burn, and banged pans together in a feverish hurrah, it was time for his last meal. A bowl of chicken poop. Seemingly unenthused about dinner, Bundy refused to pick something and was given the standard concoction. Steak eggs, hash browns, and toast. Fuck, that last meal sounds pretty damn good. Can it be garlic bread? With nerves and anxiety likely coursing through his body, he didn't even pick at it. So Bundy died hungry. Good. In addition to the frenzied mob outside, the main event inside Florida State Prison was nearly equally well attended. According to the LA Times, reporting from inside, 42 witnesses came to watch Ted Bundy's death. The Times covered the killer's last breaths Jeez. and left behind a detailed answer to the question of how did Ted Bundy die? Lightning up his ass. Superintendent Tom Barton asked Bundy if he had any last words. The killer hesitated. His voice quavered. Quote, I'd like to give my love to my family and friends, he said. No, thank you. With that, it was time. The last thick strap was pulled across Bundy's mouth and chin. The metal skull cap was then bolted in place, its heavy black veil falling in front of the condemned man's face. Barton gave the go-ahead. 
an anonymous executioner pushed the button. 2,000 volts surged through the wires. Bundy's body tensed and his hands tightened into a clench. A tiny puff of smoke lifted from his right leg. A minute later, the machine was turned off and Bundy went limp. A paramedic opened the blue shirt and listened for a heartbeat. A second doctor aimed light into his eyes and at 7.16 a.m., Theodore Robert Bundy, one of the most active killers of all time, was pronounced dead. Fucking good. After Ted Bundy's execution, his brain was removed in the name of science. In the hopes that any glaring abnormalities could be found that indicated what caused such violent behavior, researchers examined the organ thoroughly. Injuries to the brain have indeed been found by some researchers to cause criminality. In Bundy's case, no such evidence was Mm, discovered. Just born a psychotic cunt. The lack of any understandable reason and physical cause has certainly made the man's legacy of rampant rape, murder, and necrophilia all the more horrific. Ted Bundy essentially represents the invisible psychopath. Were it not for a few mistakes caused by his bloody passions and a few lucky breaks on behalf of the law, Bundy may well have continued to be a charming law student by day and horror movie monster by night. Bundicles the swamp cunt? In the end, his body was cremated and his ashes scattered in Washington's Cascade Mountains as he had requested. Boo. Should have been placed at the bottom of a porta party at a hippie barter fair. The Cascades are the very same mountain range Bundy used to dump at least four of his murder victims. Shouldn't have granted that. I know. Since then, Bundy has been the inspiration for countless horror films, true crime books, documentaries, and decades later, humanity is still collectively trying to understand how a seemingly normal, handsome man with a decent upbringing could have been so violent, gruesome, and indifferent. And that concludes our Ted Bundy. Bundicles. Bundicles. Let's take a look at the dipshit meter, shall we? Yes. Ted Bundy's dipshit meter. Okay, so, Ted Bundy, what a goddamn (laughs) piece of shit. Crazy, crazy story. Yeah. So much to this story. And the guy was fucking nuts. Yes. Beyond. I mean. I mean, what a danger. Like, we have our danger meter. Yeah. And let's go into it. So, brutality. Uh, after much deliberation, 5.0, mm-hmm. he's shoving things inside women while they're, I mean, yep. couldn't be more brutal no, than that. No, At one point, uh, part of my score for brutality was uh, that incident where he bashed that girl over the head, knocked her out, put her in the trunk of his car and drove her for an hour and a half before he found a place where he could take her out and then kill her. Yeah. That hour and a half for that woman with the pain and the fear was it torture. had to be just torture. Yeah. And then not to mention, you know, the the young girl, the teenager that he kept for 12 hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, I couldn't even imagine what he did Ugh. with her. 5.0. Yeah. He's our highest there. Yeah. Now let's talk cruelty. This one's a 4.5. Yeah. And not quite. We've seen a bit more cruel when it comes mm-hmm. to, you know, keeping him alive for days or weeks torture. or months. And, torture, torture, yeah. yeah. But very cruel in the way he did things, even Absolutely. though he was quick about it. Well, and not just with his killings. I mean, if we think back to the girlfriend that oh, yeah. he went and made fall in love with him mm-hmm. out of spite. And then the moment she said yes... He dumped her, mm. you know. I mean, that's cruel. Very. And the attempted murder of his longtime girlfriend, Elizabeth. Yeah, just by closing smoking her out. And her child was in that house. Yeah. You know, so just just insane. 4.5. Now let's talk the criminal mind. He's pretty bright. Yeah. Give him a 4.5. Yeah. He 
he well he went to law school mm-hmm. and he studied psychology i mean he's he's a danger <laughs> all yeah. the way across he moved the board from state to state to cover his he tracks made and friends with, throw shit off he made friends in the very early days with um high political figures mm-hmm. he covered his tracks by helping in the um the emergency services department very clever um counseling, yeah, he was counseling answering yeah. Suicide prevention and stuff. Yeah. The irony of this guy's life. I know. It's just crazy. Plus, yeah, he went state to state to cover his tracks. Mm-hmm. Um, he was also found to stage crime scenes. So it would throw the uh, investigators off. So the guy wasn't stupid. Mm-hmm. Not when it came to covering his tracks. Yeah. yeah. He was also really good at Trivial Pursuit. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. All right, now let's talk depravity. Dude. He's, yeah. <laughs> 5.0. Way up there. Amongst Fucking the ridiculous. the worst I've ever heard. Yeah. He's up there. I mean, he he's 5.0. Ugh. So he, he's... He enjoyed... Ugh. Ugh, he enjoyed watching his victims decompose. Mm-hmm. It will. He came back and had sex with them. Yeah, he washed after, their hair after weeks. He put makeup on their decomposing faces. He cut off their heads and took them home and had sex with their heads. Yeah, I didn't know that about Ted Bundy. I it I took had none of this knowledge was known by me before this. Ugh. Yeah. Well, I I had heard something about that before I started all of this research, but I wasn't sure. You know, when you think of media sensationalism and, mm-hmm. and rumor and all that, I thought maybe it was that. Uh, no, no. This was out of his mouth. This was, these were uh, the, the necrophilia and uh, the decomposition and all of the stuff that he did. This came out just hours before his execution yeah. because he wanted to clear his plate. Or he might have just wanted to fuck with everybody one last time, too. Maybe. Get, grain of salt always. With Maybe. Well, it's very difficult to prove uh, a lot of his confessions because, as you know, we all know after this episode, is that a lot of his victims were found. Uh, they were just bones. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was really difficult to tell what he did to them prior to their deaths, except for the ones that were found, like the mummified uh, remains. And, and there were some that were days dead, um, like the frozen woman in Colorado. Mm-hmm. And we chose not to do the confessions completely. Here. Yeah, um, there was there's so probably much. a whole other episode a there. Whole, exactly. But after these two, it probably mm-hmm. makes sense to not. And, there, and you guys heard some of the confessions. That's yeah. how we learned some of this stuff. Well, but and, there's and, just more and more of this crap. And I put um, his. Con- I tried to salt. I tried to pepper his confessions throughout this uh, both episodes. Mm-hmm. So I added that information in with each victim. Yeah. Yeah. And we got. <laughs> We got a pretty good picture of how fucking wackadoodle mm. this guy was. Insane. So now let's talk. The number of victims is, is pretty high for the danger meter. Right. Uh, we give him a 5.0. Yeah. And that's because he killed 30 that were... He confessed he to confessed 30. He confessed to 30. Mm-hmm. But people speculate up to 100 or Yeah, in, in, including the FBI, the investigators. Mm-hmm. They speculate up to... They're thinking closer to 100. Right. Um, just because of his cycle... The way he did things, uh, they were so close together. Uh, he did escalate as time went on, but he never fell short of that three-month mark, I don't think. Mm-hmm. And there were months in there where there was no activity, and that's not like him. Right. Uh, criminal this psychologists, is a sexual, yeah. yeah. Criminal psychologists state that uh, it's unlikely that they stop, mm. even take a break for a while. So, so yeah. let's look at this. He's got three of our highest. Yeah. Marks and two where he's just one or two ticks away from being the mm-hmm. highest marks. Mm-hmm. He has uh, taken the biggest dipshit thrown away from Albert, Albert Fish. Fish. Mm-hmm. It's a 4.8. Albert Fish is a 4.5. Mm. 
And so number one of all time yeah. on the dipshit files. I had no idea that Ted Bundy would have done this. Well, and this is by a little bit. I mean, this is by point three, mm-hmm. which again, I mean, this is, a, and what we're doing, uh, you have to be a really big piece of shit to do yeah. what he did. So. Yeah. Fuck. Well, even just a quick internet search of the top 10 serial killers or most dangerous or whatever. Yeah. Do just look it up. Well, he's now, at, he's at the top. I, I mean, this of is, all of this them. is everything terrible mm-hmm. about a monster Yeah. that, but he's just in a human form. Right. Uh, as long as. It could have been worse if he was a dictator, because then he would have got to do this in mass. Right, right. This is pretty much as bad as could be. Okay, let's talk about notoriety, our notoriety scale. So the way we do notoriety, this is another one that was surprising to me, Mm because a lot of these don't have notoriety all the time before the trial or or just gets lost in Mm -hmm. in the world. Mm -hmm. But we have our before the trial, and this is all on the scale of zero to five. Uh, after the trial, once they've been caught, mm-hmm. and then the infamy afterwards, mm-hmm. and these are all very high as yeah, well. Yeah, absolutely. So before the trial, you gave him a four point five. I did because it just shocked the fucking yeah. at least the West. Well, but. these disappearances, these women were just vanishing, uh, and throughout time, their bodies were being discovered. But these women were literally disappearing off the face of the earth. Yeah. And, and other states had heard about it, and they're exactly. like, fuck, I'm cutting my hair different, right. I'm imagining. Just, it was just crazy. So there was a lot of fear, and it took, it was a slow burn, um, because the police withheld information from the public for quite some time, specifically in Washington, um, and I guess they did in, in Utah as well. But as time went on and this information was released, prior to them knowing it was Ted Bundy who'd done these things, people were getting scared. Yeah. Because it wasn't just college students. He was going after people's kids. Right. And it was getting more and more scary for the general public. So yeah. we gave him a 4.5 because the public devastation was high. Without knowing Be- the details. Without even knowing what yeah, he did. what he had done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So after the trial, you gave him a 5. And obviously so, because... Mm-hmm. Once people figured out what he had done and mm-hmm. how much he had done that, 5.0. Well, and even still, after the trial, the public, when the FBI and none of these, and the investigators, nobody really knew the depth and truth to what he did until 14, nine years later. It was nine years yeah, later. So uh, it wasn't until right before he was executed that he came clean. And we still don't really know. And we still don't know. We know a fraction of Mm-mm. it for sure. Yeah. So 5.0 for that. And then the infamy. He's pretty much the most yeah. famous serial killer yep. of all time. Up at the so top, yeah. 5.0 again. And so for he's our 4.83. He gets mm-hmm. a 4.83 for that. Yeah. So he is the most dangerous and mm-hmm. the most famous serial killer of all time. Yeah. Well, I, I should have known that going into this now yeah. that I'm saying that out loud. But right. not really being interested in, the, you know, knowing that kind of thing before. Mm-hmm. It's very obvious why he is yeah. the most famous because he is the most dangerous so far. He really was. I mean... From the very beginning, uh, his innocuous appearance, uh, his uh, perceived intelligence, Mm -hmm. his gentle, supposed gentle, kind nature, and his respectable approach to people, all of these things made him the ultimate predator. Yeah. Because there were no signs. People close to him, nobody knew. Everyone was shocked. He had Elizabeth Clover completely snowed. Yeah. Uh, even though she was finding weird shit, he was obviously a good liar. Mm-hmm. Charismatic. Um, yeah. So yeah. just very, very dangerous human. And uh, yeah, he doesn't need to be here anymore. And I'm glad he left uh, years ago. Yeah. <laughs> glad well, he's no longer here. Absolutely. So a 4.8 as far as danger and a 4.83 as far as notoriety. Mm-hmm. He is the top dipshit in yeah. our files so far. All right. Let's finish this off with a little bit of a conclusion. 
Who do our dipshits think of today's dipshit? Eh? Okay, so what I, I came away with was the most depraved person. That, I mean, he and Albert Fish mm-hmm. were just fighting. Yeah. Uh, really, once you go eating people or fucking dead people, right. it's really difficult to right. to figure out who's worse. Yeah. Uh, At that point, something has broken in your brain yeah. beyond any semblance of repair. Just listening to it makes me want to get the friendly friends out every five <laughs> seconds. Right. So that's how that goes. Well, in this, in this uh, two-part episode of... Of, uh, the dipshit files I took a bit of a different approach to this um, and I my initial attempt at writing this was going to be to try and just cover the facts of the case um, but in the process of this there are so many uh, podcast episodes and documentaries out there that touch on the victims and give all of the attention to the killer yeah. and I kind of wanted to take some of that attention away. I wanted to take some of the impact away from Ted Bundy and Bundicles. 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 And kind of introduce our listeners to the victims and uh, bring them a little closer to understanding who these people were. Oftentimes we forget about the victims. Yeah, it was things. very interesting to hear about their lives and yeah. just how devastating it was that he he managed to enter their lives. Right. So yeah. I kind of wanted to honor the victims uh, and with as much information as I could find. And some of them, there wasn't a lot. Right. Um, but I did my best. So. You did great. That was very, I mean, fuck. Thank you. I had no idea about a lot of that stuff. And yeah. now I wish I didn't, but I appreciate you really, <laughs> uh, giving us the, the choice there. You know, one thing that I, I looked at where I thought of while we were doing this was that the police looking at a runaway situation yeah. and I'm sure that there's a reason for it. I'm sure mm-hmm. it happens constantly. And I right. remember with time suck, we looked into that a lot too, but Ted Bundy, the way he was and how smart he was, he mm-hmm. must've, it must've worked to his benefit he and had he to knew have it known. and he yeah. was working it. Yeah. Right. It's just, uh, it's a crazy kind of thing, uh, where you're trying to do good mm-hmm. and you're trying to, you know, basically not waste police resources. Right. And it just, yeah, there's a guy out there like, yeah, keep doing that. Right. Well, it does kind of make me wonder um, how many, in ratio, how many missing person cases uh, in this uh, basically demographic, these Mm -hmm. young women, how many of them at that time were actually runaways? Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't know that information. I probably could have dug and found it. I didn't. It's just because I, in my research brain over the past however long is is a little taxed but i was curious of what that um what that percentage was because you know even if it's one out of ten you know uh, Mm. which is just an arbitrary number that i just threw out there with no no support but even if it's one out of ten that would still explain why most detectives won't jump on a missing persons case Mm. with gusto until there's proof in one way or another, yeah. that they were likely abducted and didn't just run away. But the problem is that you got that 24, 48 hour kind of yeah, thing. And, right. And so it's catch 22. Or That's a problem because. Counterproductive, they, at least. Well, they say your most of your evidence uh, collection and testimony is going to be best collected in the first 24 to 48 hours. Right. And once you That's pass that. That's what the that TV wind, told me. Well, I don't know. And, and it's reiterated again and again in a lot of these documents that when I'm researching this stuff. So I, I have a feeling that that is true. Um, I'm not a detective. I'm not a police officer, but it feels like it is. So 
if they're assumed a runaway from the beginning, they're losing out on valuable evidence and eyewitness testimony during the period of time of assumption, which is just sad and and devastating for these families. But at the same time, if they were to investigate as if it were an abduction case, and it turns out to be a runaway, that's lost um, police yeah, time, manpower. Mm-hmm, exactly. So, I mean, I understand, but it's still, there's got to be a, a happy medium in there. Yeah. Now, I did I did find out recently over the past however many weeks throughout different amounts of research that, and I'm not sure if it goes state by state or if it's a federal thing, but a missing person, you don't have to wait 24 hours anymore to file a police report. Yeah, we heard that in one of our episodes. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So that has actually been cast aside. You mm-hmm. can file a missing rep- person's report right away. Good. Um, it doesn't mean they're going to investigate it right away. But you can file that report and get that on file. So that's, and I'm not sure if it's state by state or if it's federal, but that's uh, that's reassuring now. Yeah. yeah. Takes kind of that frustration out for these some of these parents of young kids that go missing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, is there anything else you wanted to say about old Ted Bundicles? Are you glad to put it behind oh, you? Oh, I'm glad that this is behind me. Um, I'm I'm uh, happy that I was challenged to do a deep dive, yeah. and hopefully, I dove deep enough for our listeners. Um, there was more information out there, not a whole lot, unless I wanted we to go. We could have gone day in, by day into his life and well, read his diary out loud. If I wanted to go into his confessions, uh, which is. Uh, but there's documentaries out there for It's that an too. exercise of just complete depravity. If you want to look into it, there are documentaries. Uh, the taped Tell con- us how you feel. The taped confessions of Ted Bundy. There's several of those documentaries out there. I would stay away from the made-for-TV movies, to right. be honest with you, because they get a lot of shit wrong. Of course. Uh, there was stuff in there where I was like, when you write a three script, minutes in, I'm like, that's not fucking right. When you write a script and you're like, I need a little character change here. I know. And it's like, well, he didn't. It's like, well, <laughs> he's going to have to, because Hollywood right, dictates. Right. Yeah. But actual documentaries uh, that aren't in it, I mean, they're not, they don't have actors and shit. They might have recreations, but those that I've Is there anyone found, that, you, that you'd recommend? Um, the Ted Bundy, Confessions of a Killer, the Ted Bundy tapes. I think that was... The name of it? One of them. There's several of those, but right. Ted Bundy's episode was really good. And then there was a... Oh, gosh. No, I, I don't have them in front of me. Okay. There's a couple of them out there, and most of them are recent. Okay. So Yeah, I remember it was popular for yeah, a minute. Yeah, yeah. So. Well, I never got to do that for Dan. That was an early episode of the mm. Time Suck experience, so I was. Oh. I never got to even look into him. So this was eye-opening for me, for oh. sure. No idea why people were like, Ted Bundy, Ted Bundy. Now, now I you know. know why. <laughs> Fuck. 4.8. Now you he's, know. He's the most dangerous piece of shit and the, perhaps the most famous. Terrible Ted Bundy. Yeah. Well, that's going to do it for this week's Dipshit Files and for our two-parter on Ted Bundicles. Wow. Crazy. Yeah. Well, thank you for listening, you guys. We appreciate you. You can visit us at scatcast.com. You can write to us at info at scatcast.com. Mm-hmm. Of course, you can support us at patreon.com forward slash scatcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, but thank you guys for listening and we'll talk at you in the future. It'll seem like the present. Bye. Bye.
dipshit files. Bing. Bong. <laughs> 